time, a good job of staying on time in the morning session. That I don't want people to criticize this panel for not staying on time. So we'll start almost on time. Uh, there are two very quick announcements that, that Herb wanted me to make. One is that you should all make your reservations for the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. Uh, that decision, not Chicago, Rio is going to be really Rio. Uh, and secondly, some of you have asked about wireless access. Uh, and I'm told that at the break today, our people will be here to hook you up to wireless access if you, if you need to have that. Is that right, Herb? I think that they're bringing over passwords. Bringing over passwords, yes. And for $25, they will directly to me. Okay, well, I, I, I am told that, that race was a key issue in the 2008 presidential campaign. And we have four papers today that are going to focus on the role of race. Uh, they're going to do so as they should, as I think very appropriate, within a broader multivariate context by comparing race with other factors in influencing the vote. Uh, you'll see widespread analysis of voting in the 2008 campaign, but of course, in addition, you will see a shared focus on, on race. Uh, it's an extra bonus, uh, the, the, the broad modeling focus on the election. What we're going to do is go in order of the program. Uh, I think you probably know everybody that I could introduce people, but uh, well, why don't I introduce people as we go along? The first paper will be presented by Harold Clark on behalf of a raft of colleagues from various universities in various countries around the world. So let me turn things over first to Harold. Thanks, Paul. Get this going here. Yeah, uh, um, Herb told me I'd be on the uh, panel that dealt uh, uh, with the uh, role of race in the 2008 uh, uh, presidential election. And uh, uh, I said, gee, we talked somewhat about that, but we talked about, as, as Paul said, a number of other things as well. So apparently this paper was designed to be a fairly general sort of uh, uh, overview and argument about the factors that were uh, important in 2008 and raise some questions along, along the way. That a group like this, uh, I'm sure, you know, will be will be interested in. Um, Paul said there's a number of us involved in this in this uh, uh, project. Myself, uh, Al Hornberg, my former dissertation supervisor, uh, Jason Reifler, some of you may know, and then some of the uh, British election study colleagues, uh, Dave Sanders, Tom Scotto, another colleague, Marianne Stewart. You know, uh, BES and Paul Whiteley, and you said, "Well, gee, why you got all those guys on there? What do you think you are, a physicist or something <laughs> like that?" You know. And the way this came about was uh, uh, from an email that I received one one uh, uh, morning, uh, almost, I guess almost a couple years ago, from Lynn Vavrick, and uh, 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 she was inquiring not just from me but from a lot of people in political science who do, do voting studies whether we would be interested in buying into something that, that uh, was called the uh, 2008 Cooperative Campaign Analysis Project, which uh, uh, she was organizing with uh, uh, Simon Jackman, and the idea was that they would be doing a, a, a large international internet uh, panel survey, uh, um, and you could buy into this thing in various, uh, they're gonna do six ways in total, 
and you could buy in for one or more of the waves, except for the December one, which was a baseline wave that you got for free, quote-unquote. Uh, um, in order to buy into all six waves, uh, it was going to cost us $33,000, as I recall. And I looked at my wallet, I didn't quite have that amount uh, uh, there. And so I said, well, let's organize a consortium of uh, uh, colleagues and get the money that we needed. And we did so. And one of the reasons you know, it was motivating us was that we had been trying, some of us at least since 1988, to interest the American National Election Study in doing uh, genuine uh, you know, uh, uh, comparative uh, uh, work uh, across nationally with almost zero success. Not quite. I think we got one question in 2008, finally. I, literally one question. Uh, uh, so virtually no success. We say, hey, we got to take matters into our own hands, and uh, uh, you know, this is how we, how we did it. Uh, um, the uh, um, firm that's doing the field work is uh, Doug Rivers shop, uh, YouGov Polymetrics. A number of people in this, how many people in this room actually were part of the, uh, bought into this in one or more? So yeah, so you guys know what I'm talking about here. Uh, we bought into all of the waves. Uh, um, it's a six wave uh, study, huge N, and it's a registered voter uh, uh, you know, uh, base. So you're not gonna be doing anything with, with turnout. And that's, you know, in some ways unfortunate, but nevertheless, it, it gives us still a, an enormous amount of leverage for investigating a, 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 a number of things having to do with electoral choice in 2008. Just a little bit on the, the prime facie, you know, validity of the, uh, of the dependent variable that we're interested in here in terms of vote shares. Uh, you can see the CCAP vote shares there in red and the actual vote shares uh, in the uh, uh, striped blue and blue and white uh, uh, bars. Very, very close there. Uh, uh, very nice distribution. Most of the uh, uh, analysis I'm going to show you here are based uh, on the October-November. We're taking vote as a dependent variable and we're using data primarily from the October wave. So it's, it looks, sort of looks like what you'd be doing you're working with the traditional ANES pre-post. However, we've now started in some, some newer work to actually try to leverage the power of the six-wave uh, uh, panel and to do some latent growth curve modeling to investigate <coughs> in detail the impact of, uh, of, the, of the economy and the worst, you know, the worsening economy mounting concerns about it uh, and how that played. Uh, the model that's basically guiding us here is something that we call the valence model. Uh, we're not the only ones, the valence uh, a model of electoral choice. And it really has three familiar, uh, 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 you know, rounding up the usual suspects, but interpreting them, I think, in, in different ways. First of all is partisanship. And as we know, there's a long-standing debate between uh, uh, static, uh, what we call static social psychology, Mich famous Michigan model, versus a dynamic and much more sort of cognitively oriented model the Rochester model. We're going to argue. We have argued in a number of places that, in fact, the you know that there is a significant dynamic to partisanship, and that the Rochester model will provide us with a very nice understanding of that dynamic. The second, uh, uh, a usual suspect, of course, are issues, and in this regard, the uh, uh, confrontation really is between Downsian positional issues, spatial models of party competition, if you will, versus Stokesian valence models. Some of us are old enough to have 
remember reading that famous article by Don Stokes uh, in the American <coughs> Political Science Review back in the 60s, uh, uh, his critique of Downs. And the valence politics uh, uh, issue, the valence issues really, of course, are ones where people basically have the same ideal point, if you will, talk about it in positional terms. And every, uh, you know, the issues then that really matter in politics, for better or for worse, take it as a given, we do, is that there are things like the economy, there are things like uh, 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 education, healthcare, security. Uh, um, everybody wants these things, and the question is who and how, not what, but who and how. And we argue uh, uh, that this is very much true in all of the advanced, you know, or mature democracies, has been for a long time, and it's true in the United States as well. That these are the things, despite all the uh, 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 media attention given to positional issues such as, as uh, uh, reproductive rights, uh, 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 same-sex marriage, and so forth, that the issues that people care about, for better or worse, <coughs> they're dominated in virtually every election. Not always, but almost always, by uh, uh, the valence issues, where there's this very highly skewed opinion distribution. Third, uh, uh, the third usual suspect in the valence politics model has to do with leader images. And when I was a graduate student, leader images were uh, 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 viewed as uh, uh, certainly, uh, you know, they're suspect. You know, these are things, this is sort of, uh, uh, you know, this is something, if you paid attention to leader images rather than uh, uh, positional issues, uh, uh, you're sort of like a dummy. You're, like, you're, not, you're being suckered. You know, you're, you're not really paying attention to what models, what matters in politics. But starting in the early 90s with the work of, of Phil Tetlock and, and Paul Snyderman and a number of other people and what I call sort of the new political psychology of, which has grown over the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of attention given to the idea of heuristics, cue giving. Really nobody can behave the way that the economists suggest we uh, uh, make, make choices, the old, the, at least the earlier generation of economists before behavioral economics, and that leader images provide us with a very, very important, a crucial heuristic in terms of making decisions in a world where political stakes are high and uncertainty abounds. And so uh, uh, there's a lot of work done by, by psychologists now as well, and not just political psychologists, but others, on the importance of heuristics. We basically argue that voters are, in some sense, uh, uh, following Popkin and some others, they're smart enough to know they're not smart enough. Okay. <laughs> sort of put it that way. Um, where can you find this good stuff? Always time for a commercial. <coughs> there we go. And if you want to see the sort of background for stuff we've done, and then you want to analyze the data yourself, at least in the British case, pay attention to that. We have monthly surveys there. You can get right up and go after this stuff. In the British case, month to month. Let's go back to the United States, 2008 context. Of course, that bear dropping down, we're going to argue, is extremely important. If you want to understand what's going on in this election, you've really got to pay attention to graphs like this. And there is the famous Michigan Index of Consumer Sentiment running over about a decade. And you can see this thing crashing, as we all know, in 2008. And it's crashing well before well before Lehman Brothers fails, okay? Well, although the failure of Lehman Brothers is, is nevertheless, I would argue, very significant, the uh, uh, fact is that this was a wonderful context in which to be 
uh, an opposition, you know, to be an opposition party and an opposition candidate. Uh, uh, this is Mike Lewis Bex, and this is dreams away from election like this forever, okay? And uh, uh, at the same time, here's, you know, other, we can use other indicators. That 7.6% there looks pretty good now. Okay? If we only, if only we could have 7.6% unemployment, wouldn't that be great? But uh, the electorate followed along. One of the neat things about this uh, set of surveys is that we can take a look at how the electorate is evaluating the economy as, as the year progressed. And not surprisingly, uh, uh, those blue bars are indicating, you know, that the, the, this is negative opinion in the, in the classic uh, retrospective economic evaluation question. And here's the prospect of ones. Not quite so negative, but still, still very, very uh, uh, bad news for an incumbent party. And then following along from this, in terms of issues that people cared about, you can see those blue bars. That's the economy, and they're totally dwarfing everything else, okay? So here you've got this classic balance issue. You've got these massively negative economic judgments. Well, no brainer, right? Uh, this is going to be an easy, easy for the uh, uh, for the Democrats. Um, this is interesting too. This is interesting too. This is party best and most important issue. Okay. Now the neat thing about that graph to me is that the Democrats quickly establish a big lead and they hold it. Okay? As soon as that those can't you know that those primaries get going, they're there. And they're there all year long. And this is going to suggest to us a conjecture which I'll offer in just a moment. Party ID is an over argue party ID is a dynamic. And if you look at American data, uh, you'll see that the, the shift, there's a shift, the discernible shift to the Democrats coming into two thousand six. Okay, this was established earlier on established, and we've argued elsewhere that this has, you know, a lot, to, you know, not a lot, but certainly a substantial amount to do with Bush and the handling of, of the Iraq war. Okay, given that kind of distribution of party ID, okay, and given those, that complex of issues, you know, it's a plausible conjecture for us to think about political scientists, this was really a yellow, classic yellow dog election. For those younger people, they said, what, what's he talking about? Well, you need to go back and read V.O. Key, you know, Southern Politics, the State and Nation. And the idea is that anybody, even your yellow dog, could get elected in 2008 if they were a Democrat. Okay? And that's a really plausible conjecture given the configuration uh, of, uh, uh, of economic and, and political forces. And it's one that I think we need to think about as we start to talk about the impact of Obama's uh, 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 being an African-American uh, uh, and, and how that played in to this, <coughs> this election. Now, here's the other side, a little bit on the other side. Why it may not have been a, 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 a yellow dog election, okay? Having a six-wave national panel, we can actually go ahead. We can do this in a bunch of ways. So let's do it really easy counting exercise, looking at the dynamics of party ID using the traditional Michigan measure. First question, 19.1% missing or uh, changing at least once. Use an alternative party supporter question uh, along the lines that Dick Johnson and some others suggested. It's higher, 33% say they change at least once. Now, the vast majority of those changes, as we know, anybody who's looked at these turnover tables 
means people moved from having an identification to independence. As they move back, they tend to move back where they went. The crossovers are, are quite, quite rare, but nevertheless, there's a lot of, there's a lot of movement. Leader, leader traits, okay? Candidate traits, rather. Leader heuristics. After the election, there was a lot of writing, very so often is, Monday morning quarterbacking. But McCain was a, you know, seen as a terrible candidate. Yeah, but not so, not so. Uh, uh, the CCAP project, I couldn't get them to put more of these traits in. I wanted to use the whole NES battery. They didn't do that. Uh, 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 but you can see those red bars, or the McCain bars, He's doing pretty well, you know, relative to, to Obama. And this is taken from, from the October the October wave. Um, emotional reactions, we argue, matter as well. Here Obama does somewhat better, but again, for the most part, he's not dominating. He's not really taking, not really taking, uh, 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 or, or Obama's doing better. He's not really taking McCain apart by any means. Here's another thing to think about in terms of whether or not it's a yellow dog election. It's just public opinion polls here, and what we've done. These are just the poll of polls. This is, this is not a, a, a Bayesian analysis or anything like that. We're just doing uh, uh, daily averages, and then we're going to smooth the series with the Hodrick Prescott filter, give you a, a, you know, get some of the noise out of there, and you can see uh, uh, um, that uh, uh, as we already know, here's this little bounce. Here's the Palin bounce right there. But after that, Obama takes off. That line is. is Assertively moving and it's moving upwards, and then McCain right at the very end comes back a little bit. But dynamics, timing of vote decisions. Do people know when they voted, like when they made up their mind? Well, maybe, maybe not. But if you think they do, then there's a lot of evidence to suggest that a lot of people are making up their mind from the conventions onward. Okay? And again, this suggests that the quality of the campaign, the quality of the candidates uh, makes a difference. Rival models of, of presidential voting. This is something we've featured in the, in the work we've done over the last several years. And uh, uh, we do a lot of uh, model testing in terms of uh, goodness of fit, uh, uh, measured in various ways, model selection criteria, et cetera, et cetera. Exogeneity testing is appropriate. And the valence politics model, which I've been describing to you, as usual, this does very well. It's a very typical result. 2008 looks a lot like other elections. We've done a whole bunch of them with ADS data and so on. Nevertheless, the composite model, which brings in, this is, this is Chris Aiken hates this, of course. This is one of his garbage camp models. But it says, hey, while the valence politics model does a great job, paying attention to positional issues and some other things matters too. You actually get some, some traction here. This thing doesn't, the valence politics model does not encompass in a statistical sense its rivals. Rather, this more richly parameterized composite model actually uh, has some value added. And that's, again, a very typical result. Use all the ADS data and so on, the great BDS data. That's the way things typically turn out. I won't uh, bother that. There's all the uh, significant effects. Uh, uh, we can talk about that uh, a little later on. Changes in probability. Leader, the big thing to look at right here in the context of this panel, of course, is that the traits, the leader traits, are really a big deal, as they usually as they usually are. Now we can get fancier with this stuff, and uh, I can talk about this a little bit later. Some of the stuff we're doing right now in terms of leveraging the panel uh, uh, properties, showing the importance of the economy. There's sort of a nice sort of way of summarizing that. That is the 
slope in economic and growing concern with economic evaluations running against uh, Obama approval across the first five waves of the panel. You can see both for uh, 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 white uh, voters and for African Americans that the uh, economy really matters, growing concern really matters. This thing is calculated net of controls for a million for a million things, including the Palin you know, the Palin conjecture, because the economy is you know Lehman Brothers and, and the Sarah Palin effect, to the extent there was one, are almost coterminous. So any anytime you try to get something reviewed, they're going to say, well, what about Sarah Palin? You know, what about Sarah Palin? So. Let's get on to the race ethnicity stuff that we want to talk about this panel in particular. There you go. Very typical result, right? 91, uh, you know, 90% plus of the African American respondents saying they voted uh, 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 for Obama. And he said, wow, that's really something. But if you know anything about earlier election studies, take 2004, it's just the way it always was, okay? That's what the ADS data tell us. And so, no news there. But we were going to argue that part, and this is hard to do with the data we have, but part of the effect of Obama's candidacy with relation to race was mobilizing the African-American community. Okay? And you can see these are Michael McDonald's data that we, we're all familiar with now. Turnout goes up from 60.1 to 61.6 with his numbers. I think it's generally accepted now. These are pretty close to being right. was very little increase in, in overall turnout. Uh, in 2008, despite all the conjectures beforehand. And then we say, okay, well, given the nature of our sample, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to look at state turnout, uh, uh, um, change in state turnout. There's just, you can you can have your uh, graduate students play around and learn about Cook's distances and leverage effects and so on. You can drop those those little dots here. It doesn't matter. Uh, uh, correlations big and strong. Change in turnout 2004 to 2008 regressed on a measure of competition state-level data, percent African-American, percent Hispanic, you can see this nice, big, fat uh, uh, effect here for African-American uh, 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 at the aggregate level. Uh, we can't do this at the individual level. I don't think ANES is any good for this. Some of you may have been doing this kind of stuff already. Okay, finally, racial <coughs> attitudes. Some people afterwards, and they may be right in a sense, Herb talked about this a little bit this morning, the transformational election, and sort of the analogies back to 1960, you know, after we had elected a Catholic president, then that was no longer an issue, okay? Uh, um, some people say, well, now that we've elected an African-American president, this is no longer an issue. But certainly in terms of individual voter psychology circa 2008, there are still very powerful relationships between people's racial attitudes. And of course, there's a huge debate about what these things really mean. But on their face, they clearly have something to do with how you feel uh, about the treatment of American, uh, you know, African-Americans. In, you know, in American, in American uh, life, uh, uh, huge correlations. And if you take a look here, then uh, in a multivariate context, put the racial resentment scale into that, the dependent variable is uh, 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 you know, Obama's traits and emotions and the gains and so on, you'll see huge effects, net of everything else, okay? All the other usual suspects, and they're predictable. If you uh, 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 have negative attitudes towards African Americans, you're gonna be much more negative towards Obama you know, in terms of traits and emotions. And that's what the CCAP data show. More general conclusions, valence politics model works very well. Big issue is the economy. Yeah, everybody, we all know that. Plus mutable partisanship and leader images tell almost all the statistical story. That's typical. 
2008, in many ways, is a classic Democratic win. Traditional coalition, if you look at the demographics, working class, minorities, women, and really a big age correlation, as we know, in 2008. Democratic win inevitable, you know, the yellow dog, uh, yellow dog conjecture. Uh, uh, our, our point, uh, the argument we're trying to advance right now, is that Obama was undoubtedly dealt a very strong hand, but on the other hand, he played it really well. He had a lot of money, he had a great organization, and he was a very good candidate in terms of his presentation and debates and so on. Very intelligent, very articulate, played very well. Uh, um, conclusions two, race. Overwhelming support for Obama amongst African-Americans, that's not atypical, but the candidacy uh, uh, motivated uh, 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 the African-American community to turn out in numbers that were very atypical in the historical context. Last point, racial attitudes are still very relevant to American electoral politics at the individual level. So at that point, I was going to take questions, but we've got other people <coughs> to uh, talk. So thank you. Thank you, Harold. I was going to ask the presenters to take 15 to 20 minutes to present their remarks on their papers. Uh, Harold has complied even before I asked for that, and so I congratulate you for that. Uh, let us turn next. Uh, anticipatory reactions are always appreciated. Uh, let me turn next to Michael Tesler, who is presenting a paper on symbolic racism. His co-author is, is Dave Serge. Alright, so what I'm going to be presenting today, it's actually two chapters from a book project that Sears and I just finished on racial attitudes and support for Obama or opposition, whichever one you may decide. And as we will see today, it is both support and opposition. And that's what this two sides of symbolic racism is always about. And that's why I like to present both the primaries and the general, because what we're going to see today is that it's not just opposition to Obama that, rac that, uh, that racial attitudes are capturing. It's also activating racial liberals. And that's what we're calling today the second side of symbolic <coughs> racism, or the two sides of symbolic racism. Now, as a lot of you guys know, symbolic racism is now about 40 years old. It has its origins in David's uh, previous work. And in the past, they pretty much treated this variable as synonymous with opposition. So larger effects have uh, particularly been treated as detrimental to black candidates and racial policies. And this makes sense for some reasons. One, they were looking primarily at racial policies that are very unpopular with the electorate. So if you're looking at affirmative action and only 20% of whites are supporting it, you're probably not going to get that strong activation of the other side of the scale. Now, on the other hand, um, and I'm going to use symbolic racism today synonymously with racial resentment because the way we operationalized symbolic racism is with the standard Kinder and Sanders resentment battery and this 
asks items like blacks could be just as well off as whites if they only tried harder, and past discrimination has made it difficult for blacks to, to work their way out of the class. Now that distribution is very conservative, underlying distribution. So if we're talking about it on a zero to one scale, where zero is the least resentful and one is the most resentful, you're gonna get a median of about 0.625 every time. So because of that distribution, larger effects typically have been detrimental. And that's why I always like to start with this slide here. So what I'm graphing out here is the earliest, this is also from the CCAP, this data here. So what I'm graphing out here are predicted favorability ratings holding a whole host of other things constant by racial resentment. And as you can see in December, you're already getting a very large resentment effect on Obama, much larger than his two Democratic rivals. But guess who has the highest mean favorability rating in this survey? It's Barack Obama, because he's able to offset his relatively poor performance among racial conservatives by strongly activating uh, racial liberals. And now that that's said, we can move on to how this affected vote in the primaries and in the general election. So what we refer to here is we refer to Obama's pattern of support throughout the primaries is one of racialized momentum. So I'm sure you guys all know about momentum. We know that after Iowa, Barack Obama shoots off into the stratosphere, increases his national poll numbers by 25 points. But who did that come from? Who was moving? And by graphing out the effects, so this is the CCAP panel again, so these are the exact same participants we can look at over time. And what I'm doing here is I'm graphing predicted probabilities of voting for uh, Obama in December, in January, in March, by racial resentment. And uh, there's a full sample in a whites-only model, as you can see. The white racial liberals are really driving this trend here. And we have a whole story for why white racial liberals get activated behind Obama and, and move to him and drive this pattern. I'll save that for later uh, in deference to time. But what's important to note here is that a greater effect of racial attitudes throughout the primary is driving Obama's increased support. So increased support for Obama comes with an increased effect of racial attitudes. And that's because who's getting activated? It's the liberals pulling that slope up. And that's inherently polarizing, right? Racial liberals and racial conservatives are becoming much more polarized. However, that is not synonymous with opposition to Barack Obama. Similarly, if we do a comparison of probability for voting for Jackson and probability of voting for Obama in 2008 and 1988, Barack Obama performs about 20 points better in both these surveys and in the actual vote total. And we can see that the reason Barack Obama, it appears, performed better than Jesse Jackson isn't because of a decreased impact of racial resentment. It's because of an increased impact of racial resentment. And that's, again, because he's pulling the racial liberals. He's predicted to do about 25 points better than Jesse Jackson is on the liberal end of the spectrum. And this is very predictable from past involved racism research that says, yes, uh, racial conservatives should not vote for a black candidate. Now, something very interesting about this opposition to Barack Obama on the right-hand side of the spectrum that I, uh, I find fascinating, we have a whole chapter actually devoted to this, and that's the fact that if racial 
uh, if racial conservatives are voting against Barack Obama, that means they're going to have to be voting for Hillary Clinton, right? And that's surprising because in the past, racially conservative Democrats, they weren't all that thrilled with Hillary Clinton. So we can see that in the past, what I'm, let me explain what I'm doing here. I'm graphing out OLS coefficients on Hillary Clinton's thermometer ratings over time. And as you can see, so what these bars represent is the effect of moving from least to most resentful on her evaluations. So this one, as you move from least to most uh, resentful, you're decreasing your evaluation of Hillary Clinton by about 10% of the evaluation scale. Same thing with ideology. As you move from extremely liberal to extremely conservative, you're decreasing your evaluation of Hillary Clinton by about 12% of the favorability scale. And this holds over time. And then as we can see in March, this relationship is now broken. Now it's the more racially conservative Democrats who are more favorable to Hillary Clinton. And the important thing is that this is distinctly racial. You do not get the same flip on the ideology coefficient. And we assume that that's because fate happened to match her up against the, the first candidate running for, first black candidate with a realistic chance of winning. Okay, so moving on to the general election, everybody wants to know how did he win? And it's harder for him to offset a greater effect in the general election than in the primaries. Because if we're just looking at the Democratic <coughs> electorate, they're pretty balanced in their racial resentment scores. So their mean would be about 0.5, right at the neutral place, normally distributed. Not so for the entire general electorate. So if we're looking at a bigger impact of racial resentment, we might expect that it would hurt Barack Obama. So if we look over time, we can see, yes, there is a much bigger effect of racial resentment in 2008. But again, who's driving this increased polarization? It's the liberals driving the, um, pulling the intercept down, so to say. And this is a very nice comparison here. So the CCAP, what they did in, two, in March of 2008, is they asked uh, if the election was held today, who would you vote for, Barack Obama or uh, John McCain, and who would you vote for, Hillary Clinton or John McCain? And as you can see, the Obama line generates much more polarization by racial attitudes. However, he's able to offset, and they do almost identical in this survey. So the greater effect, not necessarily detrimental. Now this only tells part of the story right here. There's also a dynamic element included in this uh, that we can't pick up in this graph right here. And that gets to the fact that if we're talking about March, uh, this wasn't uh, displayed in uh, Professor Clark's, but if we looked at the pollster doc, uh, trend line, it actually showed that McCain was winning in uh, beating Obama in late March, perfectly uh, <coughs> coinciding with the CCAP survey. And in the CCAP survey, he's also up by about two points, okay? So what's nice about the panel design is that we can look at March and we can look in October, and amongst just panel respondents who took all the surveys, Obama gets a net movement of seven and a half points, which coincides with what Professor Clark was showing about the increased movement to him over time. So who's this movement coming from? We might expect it could be Obama deactivating racial resentment. That was one of his main strategies as we go back and we look at uh, things from his pollster, Cornell Belcher, or from F. Axelrod. They were deliberately targeting what we could call the white racial uh, 
not the poor, the white working class. They were deliberately targeting the white working class with a strong populist message in an effort to deactivate what they called racial aversion, which is very similar to racial resentment. So let's see if that worked. Oops. It didn't really work. What, Obama, what happened with Obama is he didn't get a slope change or an effect change throughout the course of the campaign. He got an intercept change where he increased his predicted support amongst people of all racial predispositions. I don't have the November Post one up here because it looks exactly identical to the October line. So this tells us two things. It tells us once this constancy of effect of racial attitudes is really remarkable throughout the campaign when we think about all of the different things that were occurring throughout this time period. The March wave, it so happens, occurred right after Reverend Wright broke. So we have different racialized contexts. We obviously have different economic, uh, different economic contexts. And despite all of that, the effects are staying the exact same almost over time. So this tells us racial attitudes might just be chronically accessible when it comes to Barack Obama, therefore difficult to activate or difficult to deactivate. It also tells us that racial resentment isn't giving us much leverage over what's happening between October and March. It's not doing a good job of explaining the transition. So in order to get a dynamic of where this seven and a half point movement to Obama is coming from, we added some short-term dynamics to the model. Things that people expected to be important in 2008. So obviously presidential approval. The thought here is that if you can make presidential approval more important, it's gonna help Barack Obama because which is carrying near-record low approval numbers. Similarly, economic evaluations we put in the model under the expectation if you can make economic evaluations more important, given the data that Professor Clark was showing, it's going to help Barack Obama because uh, the distribution is very unfavorable to the Republican Party. We also added a wrap to the model. And so what we're doing here is we're graphing out all of these different variables while holding the other guys constant over time. And this economic one, it's not what you think. It doesn't mean that economics had no effect in March or in October. It, its effect is working through Bush because the two are, are, are very correlated. But moving on to that, where we're getting our two big priming results is we're getting big priming results on partisanship and we're getting big priming results on presidential approval. And we can see what's, dry, what's dragging these lines down is the people who strongly disapprove of Bush coming towards Obama and the Democrats coming more towards Obama. And why is this happening? Well, these are Clinton voters. So Clinton voters, as you might expect, 78% Democrat, 88% strongly disapprove of Bush. But despite that, in March, they weren't all that favorable to Barack Obama. Despite all that, Obama's only carrying a 20-point lead over McCain amongst Clinton voters in March. By October, however, he's managed to open that gap up to 50 points. So he gets a 30-point net swing, and that's what's driving the majority of that 7.5 points. So when these guys transition in great numbers, who are overwhelmingly anti-Bush and overwhelmingly Democrat, it increases the effect of 
partisanship and presidential approval. Now, we might say, why were these Clinton voters holding back? You would think that in March they would be thrilled to vote for anybody who had a D next to their name. And this is where we can get some handle on what role race played, because we can look at your predicted probability of preferring uh, McCain and Obama. And this is a great thing about the CCAP is that even doing a subsample like this, you still get over 1,000 cases in both waves. And you can look at what's going on over time. And we can see that racially conservative Clinton voters transitioned in great numbers to Barack Obama. And this is presumably because their partisanship and their feelings about Bush and their econ the economy kicked in and it, uh, it dragged them back to the party. And then when we're talking about a transformational election with regards to racial attitudes, this two sides of symbolic racism, it's inherently polarizing. If you're going to be more unfavorable to Obama than you would be a similar situated Democrat on the right side of the scale, uh, did I say that right? <laughs> you're going to be less favorable to Obama if you're a racial conservative and more favorable to him if you're a racial liberal, then it could polarize partisan attitudes. And we have a little early data from the Pew Value Study. So Pew, they do these value studies, and they have a battery of items that closely approximates racial resentment, and they ask them over time. And so what I'm doing here is I'm uh, graphing out disapproval numbers for the Democrat and approval for Bush. As you can see, a much greater effect of racial attitudes. However, we can again see what's driving that enhanced polarization, and that's the fact that racial liberals level. Thank you, Michael. Uh, now let's turn to a paper by Herb Weisberg and Chris Devine. I don't know who's going to present first. <coughs> Chris is, uh, so I will turn the podium over to him. We're saving the best for last. Every presidential election is unique in some way, but finally the 2008 presidential election that it really had it all. You see some of the, the real unique factors or exceptional factors listed up here. We had two wars going on overseas, uh, an economic recession that really worsened right in the middle of, of the, the, the uh, November, excuse me, of the fall campaign. Uh, Term-limited president with near historic lows in presidential approval ratings. Then you have the candidates on the Republican ticket. A war hero running alongside a female vice presidential candidate, and on the Democratic ticket, an African American who defeated a former first lady to win his party's nomination. Of the 2008 elections, many unconventional factors. We focus in our paper on two that were exceptionally relevant to uh, vote choice in that election, and those are racial attitudes and succession effects. We test these effects using the 2008 American National Election Studies pre and post election surveys then to determine whether our findings about racial attitude effects are unique to Barack Obama's candidacy or typical of other elections, we test similar vote choice models using ANES data from the two most comparable recent elections, 1988 and 2000, which also did not include a former, or excuse me, uh, incumbent president running for re-election. In brief, we find that racial attitudes and evaluations of President Bush were statistically significant predictors of vote choice in 2008. 
However, racial aptitudes were not significant predictors of vote choice in 1988 and 2000. From these results, we conclude that racial attitudes were made relevant to vote choice in 2008 by the nomination of Barack Obama. We also conclude that succession effects occur even when the candidate of the president's party is not a member of his administration. Of the 2008 uh, elections, many unconventional elements, perhaps the most important, was the nomination of the nation's first African-American presidential candidate, Barack Obama. That Obama did, not, did little to focus attention on his being an African-American and that the McCain campaign uh, did not explicitly invoke Obama's being African-American very often um, as a basis for opposing his, his candidacy. Uh, this doesn't mean that race was irrelevant to voters' decisions. Racial fears and stereotypes might have been cued by any number of campaign controversies, including Obama's relationship with uh, whether underground member Bill Ayers or uh, his provocative minister, uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, uh, as well as the widespread circulation of rumors questioning Obama's citizenship, religious background, and his patriotism. Race has been one of the most important factors in America's political history. However, whereas uh, overtly racist appeals were common throughout much of that history, in recent years such appeals have come to be seen as socially unacceptable. Therefore, to whatever extent racial attitudes motivate political behavior today, they are likely to be more subtly elicited and detected than in previous eras. Several theories prominent in the race and politics literature have been, to, have been designed to capture new types of racial attitudes, including symbolic racism, which we heard about already, um, also called racial resentment, uh, modern racism, racial ambivalence, aversive racism, subtle racism, racial stereotyping, and of course there are, there are others. And while these theories have been linked empirically to candidate and racial policy preferences, some scholars have disputed their conceptual, conceptual and methodological merits. Since no scholarly consensus exists to support any particular theory of racial <coughs> attitudes, we test the full range of racial attitude measures available in the 1988, 2000, and 2008 ANES data sets to estimate their effects on presidential voting. In doing so, we seek to uncover a pattern of relationships between racial attitudes and vote choice rather than focusing on the effects of a single measure, the conceptual and methodological merits of which some, some scholars are likely to dispute. Our paper also focuses on succession effects on presidential voting. Although, although not a candidate for re-election, President George W. Bush loomed large in 2008. Bush's popularity had declined to near historic lows during his second term. Although John, John McCain, Bush's would-be successor and fellow Republican, was not a member of the Bush administration, and of course the two had a strained personal and political history together, it seems quite likely that Bush's unpopularity would have impacted McCain's performance in 2008. First, the Obama campaign made great efforts to associate McCain closely with the Bush administration and its policies. Uh, second, previous research on succession effects, uh, some of which Herb has conducted in presidential elections, indicates that evaluations of the outgoing president impact the electoral performance of his party's designated successor. However, since these studies have focused on the succession attempts of incumbent vice presidents, uh, whose personal and, and political ties to the incumbent president were much clearer than in McCain's case, the 2008 election provides a particularly difficult test of succession effects. Uh, moving on to our, our model, uh, in order to determine the nature of racial attitudes, racial attitude and succession effects on presidential voting in 2008, we must create a model uh, also including relevant controls for long-term uh, political predispositions, issue attitudes, and candidate traits. 
which you see up here, to measure the effects of long-term political predispositions. We include standard ANES measures, a party identification, an ideological self-identification, uh, self self um, issue attitudes capture each major policy dimension. Uh, for social welfare issues, we have health care. For uh, social issue attitudes, we have gay marriage, for foreign policy attitudes, we have uh, evaluations of the war on terrorism, approval of the government's handling of that over previous years. Uh, candidate trait evaluations include measures of Obama and McCain's perceived leadership, empathy, integrity, and competence. Succession effects are measured using evaluations of President Bush on a feeling thermometer uh, ranging from 0 to 100, as well as respondents' <coughs> level of approval or disapproval regarding President Bush's handling of the economy. Final, finally, with respect to uh, racial attitudes, the 2008 ANES allow us to test the effects of racial resentment, subtle racism, and racial stereotyping. Uh, but we also test racial attitude effects using respondents' relative feeling thermometer ratings of African Americans and uh, white Americans, and two-item racial policy index, which includes uh, attitudes toward affirmative action and uh, government provision of aid to African Americans. In order to test whether uh, racial attitudes influence presidential voting or whether their effects are unique to the 2000, excuse me, in order to test whether racial attitudes always influence re presidential voting or whether their effects are unique to the 2008 election of Barack Obama's historic candidacy, we use similar models to analyze vote choice in the 1988 and 2000 elections. In several cases, measures identical to those available in 2008 ANES are available in the 1988 and 2000 ANES. Um, however, in some cases, such as foreign policy and social attitudes, identical measures are not available. In those cases, we use similar measures to approximate effects across years. Some racial attitude measures used in our 2008 analysis cannot be replicated in previous years uh, because the relevant questions were not asked in 1988 or 2000 ANES data sets. And uh, finally, it's important to note some important omissions from our analysis. First, we do not include demographic predictors in our model uh, because we expect their effects to work primarily through the variables already in the model, such as party identification, rather than having significant independent effects. Also, adding standard demographic predictors to our models did not affect our, our substantive conclusions uh, in other tests that we've done. Second, we do not include the standard measure of retrospective economic evaluations, the standard uh, has the economy approved or, or uh, gotten worse in the previous year. And uh, we do that because less than 10% of respondents said the economy had gotten better in the previous year. Uh, not entirely surprising, perhaps that was a little large. <laughs> but the variance on that wasn't was so small that, that it, it uh, was difficult to use. Before got caught. <laughs> um, and because evaluations of President Bush's handling of the economy yield somewhat more variance, I think it's about 20, 25% uh, say that he had done a good job, they approved of this performance. Uh, we use that as our measure to capture economic effects instead. And finally, we do not include African Americans in our analysis of the 2008 vote, unfortunately, due to an almost complete lack of variance in the dependent variable for, for these respondents. Uh, of 415 African Americans that were in the unweighted ANES sample, 412 uh, said that they voted for Obama. Uh, so it's nearly a perfectly predictive uh, independent variable. Uh, and so when comparing our 2008 model to 1988 and 2000, uh, to maximize comparability, we also have to exclude African Americans from those tests. Um, so keep that in mind as you uh, as you see the, see the results, that this is an analysis of presidential voting among uh, non-blacks only. And with that, I turn the floor over to Herb so that he can discuss the results of our analysis. Thanks, Chris.
And I'm going to try to work only from the tables rather than the PowerPoint I also have here. So let me try to get up the tables and see if... Whoa. I hope you can see them from back there. <laughs> okay, we'll try the numbers. Well, that's not how to do it. Okay, let's try this again. And... Uh, That wasn't how to do it. <laughs> no, don't upgrade. No matter what you do, don't upgrade. <laughs> hey, let's make it a little smaller then. Three percent. All right. Hey, we're getting there. Okay, good. Uh, what we've got here is a series of models, um, and the uh, model one here is a, is a straight model. Uh, without the succession effects and without the racial attitude effect. And you see we're predicting 90% of the vote, give or take, uh, and with sort of standard predictors. Model two, we toss in the succession variables, the Bush thermometer, the Bush economy. Uh, they're both significant. They add to uh, a couple more percent to the correctly predicted. And given how high we're correctly predicted, anyhow, any prediction success increase is pretty good. And for uh, likelihood ratio test aficionados, addition, adding these succession variables is significant for likelihood ratio test. Model 3A here tosses in the ratio resentment scale, which I think is the same one which was used earlier, uh, pretty much. And also is significant, and it also uh, is significant with the likelihood ratio test. Uh, in terms of effect sizes, the biggest effect is party ID. Hey, no surprise, this is the difference between minus one half a plus one-half standard deviation size, holding everything else constant at the means on the variables. Uh, candidate integrity and the Bush thermometer are tied for a second in terms of effect size. And so here's the succession effect variable with a very strong factor. And then tied for fourth, leadership and racial resentment. The racial resentment is right there as one of the most powerful variables. As Chris said, learn how to do this. Uh, as Chris said, we tried several measures of racial attitudes because there's no consensus as to which one. Uh, and so this is the same equation we had up before with racial resentment significant. Uh, here, subtle racism, racial stereotyping, racial difference score, racial policy. Each of them is significant. There's minor detailed difference. Their, their effect is smaller than racial resentment, by the way. We think the difference has to do with the racial resentment concept being the best measure of these in the ANAS survey. There are four items that best corresponds to a theory and probably the best questions on them. Uh, but in each case, uh, the racial resentment, the racial attitude scale is significantly an addition to that. Uh, in terms of, and if, if we look across the models, party ID is significant throughout. Leadership and integrity are significant throughout the Bush thermometer, and also for that matter, the Bush economy variable are significant in all the equations as well. Uh, Health care is occasionally, uh, empathy is occasionally, it differs by equation. Uh, perhaps the more relevant point is that ideology, it was originally significant, but when we toss in racial attitudes, ideology is no longer significant. However, the racial attitude scales are significant with ideology control. This goes back to the old Sears-Snyder debates. 
And here, the racial attitudes are significant once you control an ideology. Um, Hey, I did the right thing that time. Uh, this is the uh, looking for the joint effects, uh, going back to that Model 3A there, uh, with racial resentment and the Bush thermometer holding the other variables constant at their means. And in these cases, uh, we're finding racial resentment and the succession variable of the Bush thermometer to be about equally potent. And um, the way I'm trying to emphasize that here, uh, here we've got the people who are the conservative end of racial resentment, but just like Bush, totally, rating him zero on the thermometer, and their predicted probability of voting for uh, Obama is 0.56, and it's about the same thing for people with the exact opposite. Uh, the, the liberal extreme of racial resentment, but putting Bush at 100 on the thermometer scale, I think this is a good way of showing it's about the same potency of the two predictors. As Chris said, one thing we wanted to do was to go back into the previous election surveys uh, where we've got a none, where both candidates are not incumbents. The sitting president is not running again. And so this is the result for 2000 for the Gore vote. Uh, party ID significant, leadership integrity, empathy this time. The Clinton thermometer, the succession effect is there, and the racial resentment, racial difference scores, racial policy, they're not significant. Uh, they add very little to the percent variance explained, and the likelihood ratio test, uh, they're not significant. So the racial attitudes don't have the significant added power, added effect, excuse me, in 2000. And 1988 is an interesting test because this is the Willie Horton election, and in addition to being the Jesse Jackson one. Um, and here again, um, some of the standard variables are significant, no surprise. The Reagan thermometer is significant, so we've got the succession effects. Uh, that's actually the election that Franco Matai and I originally were, had the British Journal article about succession effects. Uh, but the racial variables that we could construct from that election survey, none of them are significant. Again, they don't add anything much to the prediction success. And again, in the likelihood ratio test, they're totally not significant. I'm just returning to the original table here for the rest of my comments. Uh, the, what we have here is the racial attitudes and the evaluations of President Bush affected the 2008 vote, even in a model where we tried to put in a good number of other variables that were representative of different aspects of the election. And also, by comparison to the other elections, we think the direct effect of racial attitudes on the Obama candidacy in 2008 was unique. Uh, and I'm emphasizing direct effect. I'm sure there are indirect effects in some of the other ways. I'm sure the racial resentment and the other variables, if we went back to 2000 and 1988, they, they may have affected party ID, they would have affected candidate images, that's for sure. So the racial attitudes may permeate the models. I think that's clear. But in terms of the direct effect on the vote, 2000 is unusual. Uh, to make a couple of asides, though, uh, I think we're trying to avoid using terms like racist and things like that. We're not saying people at the conservative end of the racial scales are racist. Uh, one thing, when we look at those scales and look at the measures that went into them, it's quite possible for a 
political conservative to take the conservative position on those measures, even though they're not at all racist. Uh, it really could be a matter of ideology. And yet, on the other hand, some of the measures that we had here, and particularly the uh, racial stereotype measure that we have here, this minus 0.82 significant coefficient, those are the questions of whether blacks are lazy and blacks are um, unintelligent. Um, I think there's at least implicit racial thinking, racist thinking involved in uh, the extreme positions on those variables, to say the least. Um, and as was pointed out to us by a reviewer, to be very careful the term racist, that people at the liberal end of these scales too could be considered racist if they're voting for Obama because of his race. So we're trying to avoid the racist term. It is a laden term that adds too much to the, to the discussion. But at the same point, it's clear that uh, the race really did affect the election. Uh, it affected in many ways. First, the African-American vote being so solidly for Obama that we don't even include it in these models. Um, and secondly, that the racial attitudes affected the votes of non-blacks, uh, though not enough to cost Obama the election. When we look back then at our first model in terms of where Obama's victory comes from, uh, the solid support among African Americans, the party identification advantage of Democrats in 2008, that Obama neutralized whatever uh, advantage McCain might have had on leadership and integrity. Both these means are near zero. If you might have expected the, the longtime Senator McCain to have any advantage on leadership, for example, it's pretty much neutralized here. And then you toss in uh, the Bush thermometer, uh, Bush's unpopularity and Bush's handling of the economy. These are minus one to plus one about, uh, scales, all of them. And so minus 0.52 is a pretty negative score on that. And Bush's handling the economy hurting McCain. And the point is, all the above factors uh, overcome whatever losses um, Obama might have had due to racial resentment among non-blacks. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Herman Chris. Now we shift gears a bit. The, the previous three papers have all focused on the general electorate, or in, in some cases the white electorate. Uh, the next paper takes advantage of the existence of black and Latino oversamples in the ANES 2008 study, but also compares it with the general electorate and, and the white electorate. So we have kind of a complementary paper here to the first three that we have seen. Uh, the presenters here are Matt Moretta and Gary Segura. I guess Gary, since he's standing, probably is going to go first. I'm older, so I'm not as afraid I couldn't stay awake. <laughs> So in true um, academic fashion, Matt submitted a paper title and then I wrote a new one uh, and the title sort of irrelevant. But essentially what we're trying to do is look at the effects of um, a variety of types of predictors on two-party vote in the 2008 election and specifically trying to compare Hispanics uh, to non-Hispanic whites. Now, the demographic um, underpinning of why we find the question important and interesting um, is, is pretty straightforward. This is a, a pie chart showing the, the composition of the national population in 1970. 
this is the Census Bureau's prediction of the national population in 2050. Uh, the vast uh, part of the growth there in terms of the share of the national population it, uh, are among Latinos and Hispanics. Those population trends um, are actually have an interesting geographic pattern as well. This is the percent of uh, individuals who are, uh, who are non-white in, in uh, the way we combine race and ethnicity out of the census uh, by state. Um, and this is in 1950, and this is in the 2000 election, I mean, excuse me, the 2000 census. So you can see there's uh, quite a distribution, uh, that the geographic distribution that is taking place. Uh, Latinos are a significant part of that distribution. There are now 29 states in the union where Latinos are the largest minority group um, in the state population. Uh, you can see the obvious notable exception there of the Deep South. Um, the ANES, of course, um, in attempts to sample and it samples in a, in a way that tries to draw a nationally representative population. As a consequence, the white share of the national election study uh, has declined over time when you've weighted it. Uh, there were, however, oversamples in the 2008. So this is weighted. This is not the nominal N, and I'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. So, uh, changing electorate, changing data set. Uh, the American National Election Studies multi-stage cluster sampling design uh, has sampled historically somewhere between 1,200 and 2,500 Americans. Um, it yields very small self-representing self samples of minorities for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that there were a small share of the population uh, historically. Uh, they, the ANES had occasionally oversampled African Americans. It had never systematically interviewed in a language other than English um, and uh, Latinos had, or Hispanics had never been oversampled in the history of the NES. Uh, so the 2008 study corrected both of these. So let me, before I explain that, um, uh, Matt Barreto and I made ourselves annoying at multiple public meetings of the National Election Study after Skip and John uh, took over, uh, basically crying about the fact that we can't really use the NES to do um, meaningful um, meaningful studies of minority populations because the self-representing samples are so small and because of the multi-stage cluster design so unusual that they're not particularly helpful uh, for us. And uh, true to their word, uh, John and Skip said, well, why don't you write a grant and give us the money to do this? And so that's exactly what we did. So that, that under the good offices of the National Science Foundation, we had the money to do a Hispanic oversample. Subsequent to um, our proposal, Tasha Philpott and Darren Shaw at the University of Texas wrote a similar grant to do an African-American oversample. So that's why those samples are there. Um, and I'm happy to, to report that those, those subsamples will be there again um, in 2012. The 2008 study essentially tried to correct the problems that had arisen from uh, the, the previous sampling design. So the sampling strategy in 2008 is, is adjusted to increase the probability of selection of sampling units and carrier routes that have high-density African-American and Hispanic <coughs> Uh, um, populations. One of the weird things about some of the previous samples that when there was not an oversampling effort is that you had African Americans and Latinos who self-represented, but because of the nature of, of probability of selection, they were overwhelmingly located in majority white neighborhoods, which meant that they were a somewhat unusual uh, subsample. Um, it also, uh, we increased the nominal N of both, group by doing, of both groups by doing these oversamples. Uh, and and uh, we also translated the instrument into Spanish. So it was possible for a Spanish language, um, for a Spanish dominant respondent to answer the question, questionnaire in Spanish. Um, so what's the impact of having these oversamples? We have the first opportunity for side-by-side, one-instrument comparisons of racial and ethnic groups on this important 
sort of signature barometer for of political attitudes in the discipline. The ANES is, um, for most of us, the gold standard for American behavior. So what are we trying to do here? Uh, first, uh, we're going to try to do a model of two-party vote, um, generally developed with data where only non-Hispanic whites are present in sufficient numbers. Um, are those, are those uh, models generalizable to other racial and ethnic groups? We want to ask that question. The second question is, has the, the work on minority political behavior among African-American and Latino citizens uh, yielded insights that could actually expand the explained variation in the models? That is, is there value added from work on black political behavior or Latino political behavior that enlarges the set of forces that help us understand two-party vote? And finally, what can we say about race in the 2008 election, specifically um, about the racial sentiments of Hispanics? And I'm going to talk about each of those goals for just a second. Um, does a one-size-fit-all model work? That is, we've, we've seen a number of general models of, of, of the two-party vote, and the question is, are those models consistent across racial and ethnic groups in the United States? Do traditional predictors work in the same way across each of the groups? or? Are the theories that were developed using the ANES over the last uh, decades really much better at describing the political behavior of whites and not particularly good uh, at describing the behavior of minorities? This paper attempts to provide a framework uh, to do this, so that's one of the things that we're trying to do here. The second thing we're trying to do is ask the value-added question, as I mentioned before. We have reason to suspect that some of the long-established predictors of two-party vote choice uh, in the general political behavior literature may not work in, in an environment where the, the votes we're trying to explain are those of non-white Americans. Um, the ideological decline to states, as Matt's going to illustrate for you in a, in a minute, is, are extremely high among minority citizens, so that if you lose ideology as a predictor variable, or if you use it, you're going to lose a lot of uh, respondents from those pools, unless you do some sort of imputation. Uh, church for minorities is frequently the locus of minority organization. That might mean that religious attendance has a different sign on it for Democratic share of the two-party vote than it would for the general population. Income variation among minorities is lower than it is among, uh, uh, among Anglos, and therefore it may not be as powerful a predictor as we're accustomed to. And partisanship varies uh, in its strength of association with other predictors. So there are things that predict partisanship among Latinos, for example, uh, that, that may not among whites, and therefore that will, those effects will, will, will vary when we have a model of Hispanics only. Minority politics work has identified specific social forces that are unique or at least uniquely salient to racial and ethnic groups. Nativity, generation, and language usage uh, are some obvious ones. Uh, from the black politics literature, we have a long discussion of the notion of linked fate. Uh, linked fate is important because it's the concept that suggests that um, African Americans, or if we extend it to Hispanics, uh, view political choices through a lens whereby the decision is made on what, what is best for the entire group, not as not what is best for you as an individual. Sociotropic evaluations are certainly not, not new uh, to uh, political science, but the idea that, say, for example, middle-class Latinos or middle-class African-Americans would not, in fact, change their political behavior as a consequence of that new socioeconomic status, that, uh, Dawson and others would argue, is because of this sense of social solidarity with uh, other in-group members. Um, so, uh, finally, the third question, black-brown tropes. Now, this quote comes from The New Yorker, uh, in January of the election year, quote, the Hispanic voter, and I want to say this very carefully, has not shown a lot of willingness or affinity to support black candidates. Uh, that quote is from Clinton pollster Sergio Van Dixon uh, to The New Yorker in January of 2008. Now, frankly, this is complete nonsense. 
And more, more, moreover, it was nonsense when Ben Dixon said it, and he knew it was nonsense. Or if he didn't know it was nonsense, he's made an awful lot of money not knowing much about politics. Because if you look at the history of Hispanic voting for black candidates, in fact, Hispanic voters regularly support black candidates. And we could just go through the list of, of mayor, mayoral candidates like Harold Washington, Wellington Webb, David Dinkins, Tom Bradley, all of whom polled majorities and very large majorities of Hispanic constituents in their elections. Barack Obama himself received a majority of the Hispanic vote, both running for state senate and running for the U.S. Senate. So the notion that there's no history of Latinos voting for black candidates is just completely out to lunch. But there is some evidence regarding um, Hispanic racial attitudes, and that is that folks who have looked into what Hispanics think about African Americans, or what stereotypes they're willing to articulate, or how they'll respond to experimental stimuli, find that Hispanic attitudes about African Americans don't look an awful lot different than white attitudes about African Americans. So if you go all the way back to uh, Bobo, Bobo's study, of multi-city study of urban inequality back in the early 90s, you could find some great data showing that Hispanics in major cities in the United States hold fairly negative stereotypic views of African Americans. Some more recent work by my friend Paula McClain suggests, and her, her, her studies can find largely to the South, but she suggests that, gee, immigrant Latinos have very negative views of African Americans. But none of this work ever has as a dependent variable vote choice. So the question is, do negative views of blacks by Hispanics, does racism, a word that we try not to use, right, does, do, do racial sentiments affect Hispanic vote in the way that we believe they affect white vote? So what role did Hispanic racial attitudes play, if any, in the two-party vote? So my colleague, Matt, is going to come tell you about the data. All right. Thanks, Gary. Uh, thanks, uh, Herb, for organizing this and looking to be a part of this. Uh, uh, hopefully, everyone can stay awake here. And we have a little bit of the uh, <laughs> afternoon uh, lack of coffee set again, and the coffee break is coming shortly. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll go through these uh, uh, results. Uh, as uh, Gary suggested, we're using uh, NES, as uh, other uh, panelists have used here. Um, our dependent variable here is self-reported vote choice uh, from the post-election wave. Um, but I want to uh, draw your attention to uh, this footnote down here, uh, and this might be a discussion we can have uh, with Herb and Chris. What we decided to do was to use um, for uh, African Americans, because as uh, Chris pointed out, there's really no variation at all in their vote choice in the post-election uh, sample. As we use their pre-election uh, wave uh, vote intention, because there's much more variability there, we coded it a little bit different. Uh, either preference for Obama, or you said something else, like you were undecided, or you said McCain, or you said something else. Um, we still don't have a lot of variation, so we use a rare events login, and we were at least able to get some um, uh, uh, models uh, predicting black vote choice. Uh, so we start with the traditional model. Uh, what we're interested in what is whether or not these traditional models that we've all been talking about work across different racial and ethnic groups, or whether they're confined uh, primarily just to uh, white Americans. And you can see in the traditional model, uh, we use uh, things that other people have talked about here today. Of course, we have the socioeconomic. Uh, factors, uh, party identification, uh, using the seven-point party identification. Uh, we also use ideolo uh, ideology dummies. I'm going to talk about that just a little bit right now. Uh, presidential approval, uh, religiosity, et cetera, et cetera, uh, evaluations of uh, personal finances and the economy, and then dummies for uh, the different racial ethnic groups. 
And the expanded model we had, as Gary suggested, national uh, ancestry for Latinos as well as immigrant generation, language ability, uh, and degree of Hispanic link fit. We want to see if these additional variables uh, add something to the mix and these are variables that we can't necessarily put in our um, uh, overall general model of overall American electorate. Uh, and certainly um, they don't work at, uh, at all for a white only family. Uh, and finally, we uh, delve into this black-brown issue and, and look again at uh, ideas of uh, racial attitudes using some of the exact same measures that other uh, panelists have talked about. Uh, we rely in this, in this version of the presentation on the stereotype question to see whether or not that does anything. Um, uh, on the one hand, we'll present some very similar findings as we've seen in a number of papers uh, of how it moves white voters. And we're curious to see, does that same effect hold uh, for Latinos? Um, so the models that we're going to present, we started with a general model, the uh, weighted national sample of the entire uh, electorate with race dummies. Uh, and then we have three split sample models where we just pull out and take advantage of those uh, black and Latino oversamples to run split sample analysis of whites, blacks, and Latinos. And you see how the same variables loading, on the same uh, things statistically significant, positive, negative, et cetera. What we know about the quote electorate, is that true of subgroups? Uh, we haven't ever had the ability to do this. There's tons of papers about black and Latino voting preference, but never from the same instrument and the same sample in the field at the same time. Um, everybody has their own different surveys, and they ask questions differently, uh, and there's a lot of noise in that. Uh, then we have uh, some expanded models uh, where we include those ethnic-specific variables, such as national ancestry, uh, language abilities, et cetera. Uh, and then two models related to uh, racial attitudes, one for Latinos, uh, and then we want to see whether or not that works for whites. So let me start out a little bit by talking about ideology. That's what we think one of our, um, of our a couple of take-home points. One of our take-home points we think is about ideology. Um, the first thing to note, as Gary said, and we have to put ideology dummies in our paper instead of the scale, uh, because a significant number of blacks and Latinos are not answering the ideology question in the same way that whites are. We think that ideology, one of these uh, uh, really, really important uh, traditional variables, uh, is working in a way that is different for blacks and Latinos than it is for whites. In fact, it's probably conceptualized uh, historically from the perspective um, of white voters. Uh, whites are the most likely, uh, over almost 60%, to either state liberal or conservative. So you're going to get the most variation there. Um, and far lesser uh, percentages of Latinos, Latino first is just Latino immigrants, born born, are saying, are stating a liberal or conservative ideology. Um, I'll draw your attention here to the top. Among all those who interviewed, what percent didn't answer? Uh, about 21% of whites, 46% of blacks do not state an ideology. If you put ideology in your model, and you just treat all those people who didn't answer as missing. You're losing almost half of your black sample. Uh, and also much higher rates uh, for Latinos, closer to 30% than 20%. Among those who did state an ideology, and this is where you then get less variation, 38% um, of Latinos uh, and 48% of Latino immigrants are choosing the middle category, moderate. We think there's some reasons for that. Even African Americans are more likely, after they answer, even though they're less likely to answer, to choose moderate. And that's what we mean by there's no variation there for our minority groups on this very, very important uh, predictor ideology. Um, for uh, Latinos, there are a number of issues that could be involved here that, that is reflecting in either not answering the ideology choice uh, or answering moderate. One could be that there's less, um, uh, le less ability to place those ideology uh, terms on that scale. Uh, and particularly for uh, immigrants, they may not have that same backing of learning their ideology from their parents uh, and from their parents' parents and hearing those stories. Uh, those ideological terms might mean something extremely different in a Latin American party context than they do in the United States. Uh, how do we translate those terms, liberal, moderate, conservative? Uh, some interpretations of the word uh, liberal uh, might be uh, permissive. 
uh, or um, they might mean um, restraint in some cases, depending on the interpretation and, and the country of ancestry that Latinos are coming from. Moderate might generally translate to regular uh, for Latinos. No wonder that 48% of Latino immigrants go, yeah, regular, that sounds about right. Um, so we don't get as much variation. It's not doing as much for us. And, and so that's why we put it in dummies so we can capture these. We already have smaller samples. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, so let me start out by just showing you um, the results of our general model. Um, and these are just changes in predictive probability, so they're a little bit easier to see. The bolded uh, variables are those that are statistically significant. Uh, the yellow uh, variables are the ones that are insignificant. Again, these are just changes in predictive probability. Um, and we have you know, some similarities to the previous things that we've seen. Uh, blacks and Latinos, less likely dependent variable is a vote for McCain. Uh, party appears to be working. Uh, ideology in the overall sample, all these are statistically significant as compared to moderate, which is the omitted category. Uh, Bush approval, we talked about. Uh, a lot of things here that you know, seem to make us happy as scholars would replicate our previous models and they seem to be working. Now let's put up the uh, split sample models of different groups and see if we have that comparability. This is the first sort of test that we want to do. And the first thing that comes out that stands to our attention is the way ideology works. Again, first of all, we have to dummy it up because if we don't dummy it up, we're losing huge amounts of our minority samples to begin with. Um, but for whites, it works as expected in this traditional stair-step pattern. As compared to moderates, the omitted category, uh, liberals are less likely to vote for McCain. Uh, conservatives are more likely, interestingly, you know, we can have a whole discussion about this. But, uh, among whites, that 21% who didn't specify uh, their ideology were actually uh, statistically less likely to vote for McCain. Perhaps uh, they were liberal, and, and uh, we can talk about the use of the word liberal uh, today. For blacks, none of the ideology term works. It doesn't load at all on the vote um, And for scholars of black politics, there's a lot of uh, good, well-founded theoretical reasons why this is, why the issue of civil rights trumps other things, and that association of party. A lot of African Americans consider themselves personally conservative, uh, but that does not translate onto vote choice. Uh, and for Latinos, we have some interesting results. Uh, we're only conservative works, and you, see, you can see that the magnitude is actually much larger than it is for whites, but it's because it's doing all the work. So conservative actually, both in the translation context, works the best, uh, and also voter, Latino voters are able to map that onto a partisan choice of being conservative and mapping that onto a Republican choice. Uh, but being liberal does nothing as compared to being moderate. Uh, and having no ideology also does nothing as compared to being moderate. This is one of our, we think in the comparison models, one of the most interesting things, because it works as expected for whites, but not at all for the two minority groups. Other things work really well in a comparative case. Uh, partisanship is, is uh, statistically significant in the expected direction for all three groups. And if you look at whites and Latinos, about the exact same change in predictive probability. So party identification is something that does make sense. Uh, for African Americans, it is positive and significant, but there's far less variation uh, for it to explain. And the same thing for uh, Bush approval. Uh, so in the last bit we uh, heard about uh, looking at presidential approval, we see the same thing again, where it works for all three groups. Similar magnitude for Latinos and whites, African Americans, it's positive and significant in the right direction, but there's less variation for it to explain. Other variables are different. Income, one of our standard predictors of uh, a vote choice, that really only works for whites. Um, as Gary explained, there's a couple of reasons for this. One is there's less income variation for minorities, we suspect. And also for those who are able to achieve income variation, uh, they still have such a close association, uh, perhaps to the rest of the people in their family who have not yet achieved that income uh, uh, in, in increase, uh, that it doesn't impact their vote choice. Uh, veteran status, interestingly, in the white uh, sample, uh, being a veteran is negative. Uh, in the crosstabs, this is not the case. White veterans are more likely to vote uh, for McCain, but once you put in controls for ideology and party for whites, it actually becomes negative that uh, white veterans within their similarly situated partisan and ideological camps are actually a little bit less likely 
vote for McCain, it just happens to be that most of them are conservative and Republican. Uh, for Latinos, it works in the hypothesized direction. Uh, it works in the hypothesized direction there. Uh, and so there's some differences. The key that we want to uh, leave you with here is that there, there are a lot of differences. Uh, the, the, the chart is not lining up exactly the same for these three racial methods. Um, now, uh, how does ideology work? Since this is one of the uh, things that we're most interested in. Uh, you can see for uh, whites, the blue uh, bars, there's this nice stair-step pattern. It starts at about 50%, uh, somewhere where the split is, uh, in terms of the predicted probability of voting for McCain, all other things set to the mean. Uh, and it goes up as expected. Moderates in the middle, almost exactly in between uh, conservative and liberal. Uh, and none, interestingly, uh, is the same as uh, liberal. You know, talk about reason for that. For Latinos, there's no difference except for when you get to conservative. And even when you get to conservative, you're only estimating at about 35% a Republican vote. Okay, so it's working, but it's not doing the same amount of work that it does for whites. And for blacks, uh, there's some uh, predictive probabilities there, but they're statistically insignificant. Okay, so this concept of ideology, which there are lots and lots and lots of papers and books about, uh, really doesn't appear to be working uh, well or at all for uh, these two major minority groups. Now let's go on to uh, the... Expanded models, racial and ethnic models. Uh, the first two model, uh, the, the first uh, column here is just model uh, results for Latinos. We add some additional uh, factors here. We see as compared to the omitted category, which is Puerto Rican, Cubans are more likely to vote for McCain. Uh, that tracks with general Latino politics literature, uh, even though there was a dip in Cuban Republican vote this year, as were other uh, Latinos. These are ones that did not specify. Uh, a specific national origin country because we also have Central and South American. South American also tend to be a little bit more uh, conservative. That tracks with uh, previous Latino politics findings. And so you see you know, that you need to put these additional variables in. Um, we don't see generational effects in this model, uh, but that's because that's being uh, captured, uh, we think, through the ideology variables. When we, when we put ideology in as a continuous variable, um, generation is actually significant. The foreign born were statistically less likely to vote for McCain. Uh, but there's an association there between foreign-born and uh, how they answered ideology. And finally, Hispanic-linked fate. The more that Latinos see their fate to other Latinos in the same sense of Michael Dawson's uh, concept for African-Americans, that actually controlling for things, like remember, we're controlling for party, ideology, all these other things, that adds another 13%. I mean, it's a non-trivial amount, 13% uh, likelihood of a forward. Uh, so now I want to draw your attention to the anti-black attitudes, uh, which is really uh, the stereotypes. We use the stereotypes of unintelligent and lazy uh, in describing African Americans. We tested the model with the other uh, terms that uh, Herb and Chris just uh, referred to, those uh, uh, the feeling thermometer, policy statements, uh, uh, resentment, etc. Um, and we decided to use this one uh, because it, it um, for us, works well because we're able to directly test other theories uh, and findings, empirical data in Latino politics and black-brown uh, literature, uh, especially Paul McLean's work, which has focused on this exact question of stereotypes. For whites, you see that if they hold the anti-black stereotypes, there's a, a predicted 29% increase in vote for McCain. This shouldn't shock anyone. This is what we just saw three papers in a row on. For Latinos, holding the exact same attitude is statistically insignificant. It doesn't actually move their vote choice at all. And the distribution of those attitudes in this scale, I think it ranges from zero to eight or something like that, we're combining two questions, is exactly the same for whites and Latinos. It's not like Latinos were all over on this side and there was a variation. The exact same uh, normal distribution on those attitudes, it's only predicting the vote choice of Latinos. We also added a, a, a final uh, variable in our model called black commonality, which was only asked of the Hispanic oversight. This wasn't asked of the entire election. Gary and I were also able to um, 
uh, use some of our own research money to add additional questions, supplemental questions, to just uh, the Hispanic oversample. So there are a lot of things like the country you're from, where were you born, where were your parents born, uh, what language do you consume media in. And one of the questions we asked was about uh, how much do you feel you have in common with African Americans on issues of jobs, politics, uh, politics, uh, getting uh, government contracts, your children's education, etc. And we can see that that's negative. As Latinos feel they have more in common with African Americans, um, that, that sense of commonality, not the sense of resentment or stereotypes, but the sense of commonality pushed them away from McCain and Torquil. We'll end up here with just a few charts. So here's racial attitudes, um, that racial stereotypes, uh, and predicted probability of vote for McCain by party. We wanted to show that this actually works within party. This, uh, these are people, the blue, you can see degree of anti-black attitudes have low. Um, so they're the racially uh, liberal, I guess you described going back to Michael's paper. Uh, here are the ones uh, who are racially conservative, who hold the anti-black stereotypes. And you can see that the predicted probability of voting for McCain uh, definitely increases across partisan lines uh, for white voters. Uh, and this is what the change in predicted probability looks at looks like. I'll draw your attention to, to this curve right here. This is where most of the work is happening. Huge changes in predicted probability here for the independents and the leanings. That's where all the action is happening for whites. Um, you still get some movement here. Strong Dems um, go up to 21% vote for McCain if they're uh, racially conservative. Uh, and some movement here. But partisanship is doing that work. Okay? And so in the, in the middle, you really have this really strong sense. Remember, this variable is insignificant for Latinos. It doesn't predict their vote yes or no for McCain or uh, for Latinos, we have this variable black commonality. How much do you have in common with African Americans? You can see on the low scale, you might say, well, you had this negative finding, so that must mean on the low scale, the Latinos who said, I have nothing in common with blacks, they all voted for McCain, right? Because we have, no, this is the lowest uh, point of the scale, 69% vote for Obama among Latinos. And then from there, it goes up, a 25-point increase, up to 94% predicted. Okay. So it's not working in that way that it's driving them away from Obama. There's some sort of baseline uh, and it's moving them closer as they see that opportunity for coalition. Uh, and finally, uh, the last variable that we uh, included, getting to black-round attitudes, was related to the degree of Hispanic loan fate. You see the exact same pattern here. Uh, respondents with low uh, Hispanic loan fate, and as that moves up, the probability of the Obama increases. So we see uh, they're interpreting that as a, a much more room for coalition or, or a cooperation uh, than that conflict. What does this mean? Does one size fit all? We go back to our, our first one. No. Uh, on some dimensions, there are differences across groups. Um, importantly, ideology offers substantially different interpretations for the, each of these groups. So we need to think about, theorize exactly why. What is that? What is ideology? What does that mean to voters? Who do you learn your ideology from? What does that mean when someone asks you that? It's very different when you're talking to a Hispanic or an African American uh, or a white. Um, and other differences uh, are, are apparent. Uh, things like income, uh, there was also some differences for gender, uh, there were differences um, uh, religiosity uh, that we didn't get into. Uh, and we're still exploring that, trying to find out the whole pattern there. What is consistent, what we want to know is what is consistent, what definitely works for all groups, party ID, uh, presidential approval, and what is very, very different across these groups. Uh, perceptions of Hispanically faint commonality with blacks contribute to the Obama vote, um, and other factors uh, were less important for Latinos. These really, after controlling for partisanship, these really provided a lot of um, the purchase in, in, in winning those votes for Obama from Latinos. Uh, and finally, no evidence that racial antipathy among Hispanics 
Uh, so we've had all this attention on how his racial resentment, racial stereotypes played a part in the election, uh, and very consistent findings across the three papers of different data sets, four papers. Um, and we have the same thing for whites, it significantly eroded white support. But we don't find that um, among Hispanics, and that was one of the uh, tropes that Gary said. Started from the very beginning with Hillary Clinton's pollster, um, all the way going through June, through the drawn-out process, at the very end of the primary, after it was over, and they just had that meeting of the minds in, in D.C. to try to bring people together and make sure it was over. After that had happened, and remember, Puerto Rico was the last uh, primary state to vote, um, and Hillary Clinton won overwhelmingly. The Clinton people were still saying then, in June, right before things were getting ready for the convention and the party needed to be coming together, Obama <coughs> has a Hispanic problem. Obama has a Hispanic problem. And it was, you can find headlines from after that meeting. They said, well, they've come together. Obama is going to be the nominee. The Clinton camp is not going to sue. They're not going to contest it. But Obama has this big Hispanic problem. And we don't find any empirical evidence of that uh, in this uh, or other efforts. All right, thank you. Uh, I want to do a couple of announcements before we break. First, to welcome uh, Kelly Garrett here from our uh, communications department who studies political communication, and also to acknowledge some of the political scientists who have joined us this afternoon, uh, Jack Wright, Tony Mugan, and Dick Gunther uh, joining the room. Uh, in terms of other announcements, and uh, Dana and I aren't coordinating these, and she's not in my hearing distance, so I hope I'm close. Uh, the bands, uh, just as for later today, not for right now, not for the coffee break, uh, but we will have bands to take you back from the hotel after the afternoon session. The dinner tonight is within walking distance uh, in terms of expectations. It's a good place. Uh, <laughs> but I think that Dana's going to meet people at the hotel around 640 to walk to Lemongrass. It's right over, quote-unquote, the cap from the hotel, uh, the cap because you're walking over a hotel at the time, uh, freeway at the time. Uh, in terms of dinner tonight, uh, I think the tables are tables of six to eight people. And after last night, I certainly will suggest the visitors sort of integrate with the OSU people at the tables <laughs> more than we succeeded in doing last night, maybe 50-50 or thereabouts. Uh, and then for tomorrow, the vans will be leaving the hotel around the same time for coming here in the morning. So. I think those are the announcements. Am I missing anything obvious? I have internet access. Oh, and internet access information. If you want wireless, uh, Sarah's got passwords for people. Yeah, if you've got the forms, um, yes, uh, hand them in to Dana or to Beth. Um, or I can take them to me. So, good. Which forms? Uh, the eight. AP compliance form. Compliance form. I don't know what AP is, but it's Associated Press or Advanced Play. Should we take our break now? And now coffee break time, right? For how long?